0: And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome everybody to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's apologetics dojo, and it's great to be with you today, rocking and rolling through the week, learning how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. And we are going to have a great show today. We're going to have our good friend Benjamin Handelman come on. As you know, he works with a ministry called Cross the Tiber, which is kind of like a virtual RCIA on steroids. I think that's probably a good way to summarize it. And uh <clears throat> we've had him on a few times. He himself is a convert. He was a former Baptist. And uh last time he was on, we were talking about obstacles that confront converts once they come into the church. And we had so much fun and the conversation went into so many different really interesting areas that we thought, let's let's revisit the topic. Let's look at these uh obstacles that converts run into. And kind of pick up the thread because uh, he deals with, he himself is a convert and he deals with converts regularly through uh, across the Tiber. So um, he's coming up on the other side of the break. That's going to be a lot of fun. I, I really enjoy chatting with Benjamin. Um, just very well read. And also, by the way, uh, a very astute apologist. I mean, he rubs elbows with a lot of Protestant apologists. Um both working with them in terms of defending Christianity, but also helping to clarify a lot of the errors that they have regarding the Catholic faith. So he's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to do our finding of the fallacy, sharpen our critical thinking skills. Today's finding the fallacy is the appeal to incredulity. And we're also going to meet an early church father today. Very important early church father, St. Justin the Martyr. St. Justin Martyr. So uh, great stuff in store for us. So I want to begin the program like I always do by welcoming you all to the show, be going to get a live stream audience, and also all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Love having you on board, folks. Thank you for tuning in. And like I said, it's going to be a, a ton of fun today. Um, let's see the official dojo mailbox. Let me throw that out there. It's questions at hands on Let me repeat that questions at hands on That comes directly to me, the sensei. And I do answer your emails, maybe not timely, but I do answer them eventually. And also, you know, I, it's been a lot of fun. I, I've really appreciated uh, your contributions to the show. If you know somebody out there that's doing a bang up job on social media in defending and explaining the faith, because, hey, I, I can only access so much. Uh, There's so many different media out there, uh, so many different uh, places people can engage in apologetics. I, I can't be, you know, I can't see everything. So if you see somebody who's doing a great job that you think needs a little bit of exposure, I'd love to have them on the show. So please send me an email at questions at hands on apologetics.com. Uh, tell me the name, uh, contact information, stuff like that. Also, please give me a link to their stuff so I could check out their stuff, make sure they're dojo quality. And if everything checks out, I'll, I'll shoot them an email and God willing, um, the schedules will be able to match and we'll have them on the show. We've already had a number of fantastic young apologists on the show. That's due largely to you letting me know about them. And I'm so glad that um, that we've had them on the show. I'm going to try to bring them back on the show. Problem is, it's a live show. And the timing doesn't always square with everybody's work schedule. So uh, maybe you did send me suggestions that I did check them out. Maybe we even got to the point of invite to the show. And it might be that just the schedules just don't square. So, um, you know, don't give up hope. Um, hopefully, if there, uh, their schedule loosens up or something, we'll, we'll have them on the show. Um Also, want to point you to virgin dot org simply because not only is it the flagship website virgin Most Powerful Radio, but it's a great resource in and of itself um you can uh be apprised of all the conferences that virgin most Powerful produces that's coming coming down the stream, and you definitely wanna avail yourself of that material also uh, I think it's very powerful is that you can access the shows virgin most powerful produces right there and that means you can do evangelization with the click of a button so you could download the shows you could share them you could do all sorts of stuff with them and that helps uh bring this information to people who want to hear it and it also helps us uh with our exposure as well to grow the show itself so i appreciate your help in that regards and thank you all for doing that And without further ado, why don't we jump to the finding the fallacy for today, which is the appeal to incredulity. The argument from incredulity is also known as, there's always these AKAs, argument from personal incredulity, the appeal to common sense, or the divine fallacy. It is a fallacy of informal logic. It asserts that a proposition must be false because it contradicts one's expectations or beliefs and is difficult to imagine. Now, you can just tell by that definition where the argument or the appeal to incredulity is used a lot. It's mostly used within theistic apologetics. Uh, In fact, I think in many ways that's the bread and butter fallacy for a lot of atheist apologetics is that Uh, they will dismiss as ridiculous, as unworthy of belief. That's what incredulity means. Uh, Simply because uh, their understanding of God doesn't fit their expectations or that it's difficult to imagine God. And, of course, if you know uh, theistic apologetics well, you know we can't imagine God because our imagination is tied to our senses. So everything that we imagine is something that we've seen, heard, taste, touched, um, and, uh, some sort of arrangement of those, but God is immaterial. He's beyond the senses and therefore it's impossible to actually imagine God. And so, so this, uh, fallacy is tailor made for theistic apologetics, although you do find it in Christian apologetics and also in Catholic apologetics too. Um, uh, certainly I think more in like fundamentalist circles, you might get argument from incredulity, um, Simply by typing in, tapping into um, anti-Catholic bias is another way to make the audience credulous and therefore dismiss an argument. All right, so that is our finding the fallacy for today, the appeal to incredulity. Let's meet our early church father for today, one of my favorites, very important apologist in apologetics. It is St. Justin the Martyr. Often just called Saint Justin Martyr or Justin Martyr. No martyr is not his last name. That is his title. Uh, Saint Justin the Martyr was born into paganism, and uh, in Palestine or nearby Palestine between the year one hundred and one ten A.D. As a young man, he attached himself successively, uh, successively, to uh, various philosophical schools, being first a Stoic, then a Peripatetic, then a uh, Uh, I can't talk today, Uh, you know, various things, uh, Platonist and so on. Finally, he came to know Christianity. What we know of his life comes mostly from the biographical details revealed in his own writings. As a Christian philosopher, he became uh, an itinerant, eventually arriving in Rome, where he founded a school in which he had Tatian the Syrian as a pupil the martyrdoms of um, uh, Justin and other saints are authentic accounts of the martyrdom. And according to these, he and six other companions was beheaded between the years 163 and 167 AD, most probably 165 AD. Justin was rather a prolific writer, but only two or three of his writings have come down to us along with a few fragments of other works. There are two apologies sometimes reckoned as but a single work and the dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. Uh, Both of those uh, are extant. Justin is regarded generally as the most important of the second uh, century apologist. His life or his style in writing, I should say, is tedious and labored, making it difficult to read. Yet uh, there is a note of intense sincerity in all that he wrote. In fact, I highly recommend you read the uh, first, second apology and the dialogue with trifle, which is a bit long, but, uh, it's cool because it is basically an apologetics conversation between a Christian and uh, a Jew and, and, his companions. And, uh, so you get a front row seat at the second century debate, if you will. But, uh, talking about the, uh, the first apology though, uh, the first apology and second apology, of Justin constitutes two, two works are one. It's, it's debatable. Petrologists Patrilo- either separate them two or one. Eusebius knew Justin wrote two apologies and the single manuscript mentioned above presents what is called the two apologies. Um, and, uh, the first of the 68 chapters addressed to Antonius Pius and the second of the 15 chapters addressed to the Roman Senate. Most scholars are today of the opinion, that, uh, we have only one of the two apologies known to Eusebius and that our second apology is in fact, an appendix added later by Justin himself to the first apology. If this is actually, uh, be the relationship between the so-called two apologies, it remains possibility also that, uh, is really only a single apology with its appendix that Eusebius referred to as two apologies. Okay, so my apologies for all those distinctions, but we, we do get this from Jurgens' Faith Early Fathers. He likes to dive into the details, but it's still pretty cool to listen to uh, what scholars uh, currently make of these documents. Uh, whether one or two, uh, we were kept in the tradition to refer to them as two, and basically they're written between the years 148 and 161 And that is our early church father for today, St. Justin the Martyr. Coming up next, our good friend Benjamin Handelman is coming on. We're going to talk about obstacles that conference face. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. Well, you know, the life of a convert. Once you enter the church, what do you experience? You experience the beauty, the goodness, the not-so-good, and sometimes the downright ugly, you know, just pretty much like any part of human experience. And uh, to help us look at some of the obstacles that converts uh, face and uh all that sort of stuff. We have a good friend, Benjamin Handelman with us, who is a former Baptist who converted to Catholicism. Benjamin now uses much of his time to engage Protestants, especially with particular emphasis, emphasis on uh, discussions of faith and justification. He serves as a lector at his parish, and he is a moderator on the Catholic uh, Catholicism discord server. He is the co-founder of Cross the Tiber, a Catholic community dedicated to supporting those who seek answers about the church? You could check that out, folks, at www.crossthetiber.org. And Benjamin, welcome back to Hands On Apologetics.
1: Thank you for having me. How are you doing today, Gary?
0: Oh, doing good. Yeah, I wasn't sure how to title this show because last time you on you were on, we had such an interesting discussion. You know, there are so many different threads, and I know you wanted to pick up on some of those threads. So I just threw the the general title obstacle. Uh, converts face which might be a shock to some cradle catholics it's like obstacles what obstacles would you face
1: well it's um it's definitely something that we we kind of i want to i don't want to say we got lost in the weeds it it was a tangent it was related but there's a lot of actually points i hadn't really articulated before that and so i've been thinking about that a lot and then it turns out um some of the other catholic uh, charities and stuff um, that we've engaged with in the last month they'd asked us specifically about this question like how do we build Catholic community if people are converting then they feel like they're just lost and they don't know what to do once they've finished RCA how do we keep them engaged and moving forward and I thought about that and I, I had this problem I converted and then RCA is over and then I go to Mass maybe I'd grab a donut after and then and then you drift away um it's especially bad because uh the that kind of newness has worn off right and you start comparing things oh well at my baptist church this or my methodist church that and and it's different we're we're a different church so we do things a little bit differently and so there's kind of some ways that we can uh address those questions um in fact i have a question um this is someone uh, that that we've been working with they reached out to us so they're in rca with their wife and this question came in about a month ago and um i'm going to read just part of it because he he wrote quite a lot here um but he starts off with um i'm in the middle ground of appreciating some things of the catholic church but missing some things of the protestant church the excitement and anxiousness has waned i understand most of the things and i'm at the point where i'm considering what a life as a catholic would practically be So just the way he starts off there, um, I think a lot of us have felt that over the years, right? Whether you're a cradle Catholic and you have that kind of like teenage enthusiasm, right? When you really come to understand your faith, Um, whether you're a convert, um, you'll hear terms like convert zeal or um, the Calvinists will often talk about a cage stage Calvinism if you ever heard the term, right? Someone converts to their way of thinking They are overly zealous and just on fire a thousand percent for what they believe. They burn all their bridges. Then they realize they're very lonely because they've upset everyone. And then all of a sudden, what they converted to just doesn't seem that exciting anymore, right? Um, You even see this when people start a new relationship, right? They meet a new girl, take her out to dinner a few times, the best person they ever met. And six months later, nothing. So um, we always want to you know, that initial confrontation, we want to encourage that, right? As as Catholics, we want to bring them into the church, but it doesn't end there. Just like our justification isn't one moment, our life as a Catholic is also not just one moment of conversion, but it continues throughout. And so we always want to kind of support and affirm people as they're going through that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. And it's a huge problem. I mean, uh, I work with r c i a at my parish, and uh, that's always one of those things that we, we try to keep on the front burner is integration you know coming into the church like you said they they're they're zealous you know the oil hasn't evaporated off their foreheads yet and they're ready to go great guns and then you know it's uh it, it, there is a huge transition right uh, of catholic piety versus protestant piety expectations have to be uh you know adjusted and uh just Entering into the life of the church, that's that's hard because it, that's really not a program, you know. That's, you know, you can't get that out of a box. It, it takes a lot of personal involvement.
1: Yeah, as as much as I'd love to say, you know, oh, there's a Father Schmitt, Mike schmidt's video for everything, like yeah. that kind of stuff will only get you so far. And some of this is, of course, on the convert, right? It's not um, we can't we can't hold their hand their entire Catholic life, so to speak, and lead them through it. Um, but i will also say that that a lot of a lot of us as catholics are are not very good at some of the things they expect from church as they've grown up as protestants so whether it's um maybe it's a robust like intellectual bible study I, i'll be honest i've not seen one at a local parish before i'm sure they exist somewhere but because it's not heavily emphasized a lot of parishes they'll set up a bible study but it's usually a more of like people that haven't read the Bible before. It, they're kind of covering more of the basics um, and, and almost always they go out of a workbook. And I'm not saying it's wrong to go out of a workbook, but if you're a Protestant and you've converted and then you go to Bible study and someone hands you a workbook written 12 years ago by a nun in Little Rock or something like that, it can be like very like, oh my gosh, wait, what is this? Like, what am I doing? They're used to, hey, my pastor put together this Bible study, right? It's his personal notes. He, he went into the Greek. He went into the Hebrew. He's got it all laid out for us. Um, they're not used to this more, as you said, uh, you know, out-of-the-box kind of experience. So that can be off-putting. Um, I think of like, how different the Mass is from, uh, you know, even if you go with the most similar, so like an Anglican service or a Lutheran service. Or in America, they're mostly gonna be coming from evangelical, so non-denominational or Baptist or Pentecostal services. That difference is incredible. Um, if you, every Sunday, experienced your church life one way, and then you start going to the Catholic Church, um, maybe you go to a Latin Mass or something and you get that really you know, beautiful kind of reverent Gregorian chant and things like that, and, and it's really exciting at first. But a few weeks later, you're used to your hour-long sermon and now you're getting a nine-minute homily, and half of that homily is rereading the gospel passage in English, um, it, can be, it can be jarring. It can be very much feel like that. So I can continue on with his question here. He says, I do not feel encouraged nor fulfilled spiritually or intellectually going to Mass. Some Masses are good, some are okay, many have been below average. I was nervous and excited when I first started going, but now that I understand most of what's going on, so much of it seems bland, unfulfilling, and not merely as reverent as I thought. Homilies are a hit or miss on usefulness. Most are very short and very high level. So a lot of this has to do with um, looking at the mass as a Protestant service. And you and I have a very different appreciation of what the mass is. Um, because it's more than just I'm there to listen to a homily and learn some scripture and sing some songs. We're there celebrating, you know, uh, our, our Lord's presence. Um, you know, taking communion is such a huge deal for Catholics. When if you've spent your whole life looking at communion as a symbol, what's the big deal? Right. And I I don't mean that dismissively. I I the Baptist churches I've been to the when they do communion they're very reverent about it. But it's very much kind of an inward reverence about looking at yourself and your faith and not the way we look at the reverence of this is our Lord himself that we're taking into ourselves. And so if you don't have that understanding, mass probably does seem really boring and uh, kind of truncated compared to what you're used to.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a yeah for protestant services it's it's there to do something right it's there to encourage it's there to empower it's there to educate it's to to get you on fire and and i know a lot of people um and of course you know you can't say this you know across the board but for a lot of protestants it's it's more of uh you know that you feel jesus right that uh that you encounter him in faith and you know, and your heart set afire, and that's a good service right there. Um, right, but which is almost diametrically opposed to the mass, which is Jesus is there whether you feel it or not, and you know He heals you whether you feel it or not. It's, it's it's not there for you necessarily. I don't want to say it's not for your edification. It is, but it's in a very different sense.
1: It's it's my favorite, the Catholic both and. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. It
1: it is supposed to be for encouragement. The homily is very much there to educate you about that passage, those passages of scripture you heard that day. Um, the music is there to kind of like build that reverence and sort of bring you as a community and worship together, just like a Protestant service. But that's one half of the mass. There's this whole other half, as you said. You know, Christ is there, whether we feel it or not. They look at a service more of, um, in the Old Testament, where the Spirit of God leaves the temple, right? Um, I, it's escaping me exactly which passage this is, but you know where I'm talking about, where the, the Spirit of God leaves the ark, and he's up on the hill kind of watching, and then he's gone, because the Israelites had sort of um, polluted their faith. And that's how they, uh, many, not all, um, certainly our Reformed brothers and sisters would would. Not be happy with this comparison, um, but for example, many Pentecostal services they 're very much like if you don 't have that Holy spirit experience, maybe it 's speaking in tongues, maybe it 's fainting, maybe it 's just like you're just really happy and you 're crying. if you don 't have that experience, then god then you then god wasn 't really reaching you during that service, and something was wrong there um, i i 'm not saying those things are necessarily always wrong right certainly god can reach us through music and and his word can have a particular meaning maybe it's a particularly powerful homily but the the eucharist god is literally there right it's not like an ephemeral feeling it's something that's pr- someone that's present with us and as you know as we've said that can be very jarring and so when that initial kind of convert zeal wears off you you've intellectually been convinced But you haven't been emotionally convinced. And we often, especially as apologists, we often live up here. We don't think about, well, how does this affect me? Like, how do I feel about this? Um, It's easy to dismiss feelings, especially online. Online, feelings are like the lesser things that no one wants to talk about. We're all about our thoughts and intellectual abilities. Um, But our faith isn't built that way, right? Our faith is very much about how, how we feel, how... Um, others around us feel that kind of empathy is very important to the faith. Jesus spends a lot more time lo- t- about talking about loving your neighbor than he does, you know, studying, you know, anything really.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a good point. Good point. All right, I hear the music coming up. We'll hit pause right there. We're chatting with Benjamin Handelman of CrossTheTiber.org, talking about obstacles converts face. More to come right after this. This is
1: Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
0: And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Benjamin Handelman of Tiber.org talking about obstacles converts faced. And Benjamin, let me throw a theory out at you and, uh, you know, think about whether or not this makes sense. But I th- my own personal theory is since the uh, Protestants don't have the sacrifice of the Holy Mass— they don't have the sacraments, So what they do is they beef up the sacramentals as a kind of replacement, you know, Bible reading, prayer, music, and of course, through sacramentals, which are good and holy, you can receive grace, but it's kind of a substitute for uh, the real presence and so on. And so when converts, uh, you know, Protestants become Catholic and they come to the mass, they find that the sacramentals are there but they're they're very diminished you know they're very much in the background, and uh you know the real presence is at the foreground and i th- I think maybe that would explain kind of how this disorientation that occurs uh, Did I hit the target or I think so,
1: but I want to add on to that, and by okay. me I mean I'm actually going to quote uh Cardinal Robert Sarah, um, so I don't have the quote immediately in front of me, and i don't want to distract by trying to find it but in his book, um, The Day Is Now Far Spent, he has a passage where he talks about, um, now he he starts off, he's critiquing kind of the liberal Catholics that over-intellectualize the faith and strip out the miracles out of the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't really walk on water. There's the sandbar that he must've been walking on, right? And trying to explain everything away so that our faith doesn't sound ridiculous to atheists. Um, but he also mentions the other side, right? With the sort of Protestant, um, stripping the faith itself of spirituality, right? So if you look at say a John MacArthur ridiculing us for celebrating the eucharist, it's just a wafer, it's just wine that you're bowing down to and things like that. So you strip all the supernatural out of the faith, all you're really left with are those sacramentals you're talking about. Because um if you're a cessationist, you believe that no more miracles are occurring. Um you believe that nothing happens at the Mass, you're just there to hear, you know, the priest speak and hear music, like if you if you, if you go and buy into that, then even after you've converted, maybe because of intellectually you understood the arguments, but you're right, those sacramentals are now diminished, and that was your connection. That was how you saw the faith. Yeah. So if you diminish those sacramentals, are you not also diminishing the faith, if that's how you saw it? Um, to them, it's not just that, like, oh, well, the, the actual sacraments are now being increased. It's that the sacraments don't exist. None of them, right? Um, for most Protestants, right? And obviously, I, I realize that Anglicans and Lutherans and some others they see this a little bit differently. But but in America, most Protestants are not Anglicans or Lutherans or Presbyterians, right? Most of them are Evangelicals or Methodist. Um, You you know, you, you have those groups there, um, but in the evangelical communities, it's a very Zwinglian way of looking at things. So for those who don't know, you know, Zwingli was one of the reformers, and he believed that everything was symbolic on earth, right? That there is no there is no change that occurs at baptism. Commune is just something we celebrate to remember Jesus. He's not present with us when we do it. Um, he goes farther than Calvin on that. Um, you know, baptism is just a symbolic, like, profession of faith, That nothing more you're already saved you don't even have to be baptized it's not a big deal despite scripture being very clear <laughs> you absolutely should be baptized right i, I mean there's uh you know first peter 321 john 35 like there's tons of places where it says you have to be baptized oh we're going to we're going to explain that away because everything is symbolic so if everything's symbolic then what's going to be the most important taking that wafer because that's all you're going to see it as is a wafer or that rousing sermon that you heard that was fifty five minutes long and built and crescendoed, and then this beautiful music that played and the lights dimmed right what's what's going to have more of an effect on you so I, th- I think you're absolutely right
0: yeah, yeah, and uh and you know we shouldn't discount as Catholics the fact that they, they they can receive grace through sacramentals. I mean we receive grace through sacramentals, so I think you know that is part of their spiritual nourishment in a, a real sense. Right. Because, uh, you know, studying scripture, praying, uh, sacred music, that type of stuff. uh, God can work with it. And then uh, to come into the church and all of a sudden that's very much in the background. Um, You know, uh, they still can receive grace, but it's, uh, you know, like I said, it's not emphasized because the sacraments are emphasized. Well, even even at our masses, now, granted, if you're going to the 6.30
1: a.m. Mass or 7 a.m. Mass, whatever your church may have, maybe there's not a lot of music, right? The, at, at the earlier ones, they, they usually uh, cut that out. But I sure hope you're hearing Scripture, right? Yeah. There, you should be hearing three passages of Scripture and a psalm. Um, there should be, you know, generally speaking at Mass, we also have music. Um, if, if you go to a live team Mass, you'll even get some of the same songs you heard at your evangelical church. If you go to the other masses, you'll get the same songs you heard at your Lutheran church. Um, it's, those are important things. I absolutely hope every Catholic out there prays regularly. Um, I, I, those are, these are critical, and we don't wanna diminish those things. And um, we can touch on another aspect that's really important, and that's that community aspect, that unfortunately, this is a right criticism of, of many parishes. Um, Because as as Christians, we exist in community. Um, Lumen Gentium refers to, uh, I'll be quoting the catechism here, not Lumen Gentium itself. So paragraph 959, um, so it says, in one family of God, for if we continue to love one another and to join in praising the most holy trinity, all of us who are sons of God and form one family in Christ, we will be faithful to the deepest vocation of the church. So over and over, you're, you'll hear St. Paul in Scripture talking about strengthening each other. James talks about this. Jesus, Matthew 25, this is a big, this is a big part of it, is we should be strengthening each other as Christians. Um, and if I go back to uh, this person that was asking us the question, he says, um, where is the Catholic community if you only see each other for 30 seconds during each Mass when you're saying, peace be with you? And, and he's right that that's a valid criticism if you're parish that's the only opportunity you have to connect with each other is the sign of peace that that's really scary to me right and my guess is the average age of the person in that parish is probably over 60 um because i've encountered this myself i'm sure you've maybe seen parishes like that as well um so as catholics hopefully our parishes in our parishes we should be encouraging other things right We have the mass. Everyone has to go to mass on Sunday. What else are we doing as Catholics? Maybe there's a March for Life organization going on. Um, Maybe there's a local soup kitchen that the parish is involved in. Knights of Columbus, I think, is a fantastic way to be involved. Um, There's uh, my parish does a pancake breakfast once a month. Um, It's uh, pancakes with the pastor, I think is what they call it. You get, it's, it's a free will gift. You sit down, you have pancakes, the priest walks around and talks to everyone. Everyone gathers and sits together. It's a, it's a really positive experience. Right. Um, as Catholics, we absolutely believe in community. I mean, that's the word communion is right in there. In fact, we have a larger community than any Protestants because we have the communion of the saints in heaven as well, right? right. So we should be celebrating those things and encouraging them. So I do want to make sure I'm affirming that concern if you're a Protestant, you convert and you go to your parish and your bulletin is one page and then four pages of ads, like that's a valid criticism. And I, and I totally understand it.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was acts two forty two, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the uh, fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And so fellowships, one of those things that their first Christians were devoted to. I mean, in a way, I mean, we are the body of Christ and that's expressed. It should be expressed, you know, visibly because our concerns for one another. So even if it's pancake breakfasts or whatever, but even for giving to the poor, you know, it's not just the thing we do. It's because we acknowledge that our brothers and sisters that are in different countries are in need. And so, you know, we have concern for them just like uh you mentioned with the communion of the saints the concern of the saints in heaven with those on earth it's all part of that one mixture and it's just i think that's one of the scary signs is when that's on the wane in the in the church is this you know healthy fellowship it wasn't always like that i know when i was young churches were beehives of all sorts of sedalities and you know things going on now it's uh you know it's uh mass, and then everybody's out of there
1: I agree in fact, um one thing I'm really uh proud of my parish, I guess if you will um since uh roe v. Wade was overturned, the pastor immediately and he and he was just made the pastor at the in the beginning of june um the one of the first things he did is he started pushing a local um organization that helps women um, who are single mothers because he said, look, like we've we've done the first part, we've repealed it, now we have to walk the talk, right? We have to actually be out there helping these women who are choosing to keep their babies, right? If we're pro-life, we have to be pro-life the whole way. And so rather than just saying that once and giving it lip service, like we've been actively donating and pushing and volunteering to help these single mothers and, and, and others who are in need, of course. And the, as you said, right, That's that's part of our community, right? Because we recognize that even if it's a single mother, um, she was never married, she was sleeping around, it doesn't matter. She's still a human being that God loves, made in his image, that we need to love and cherish and show dignity towards. And those kind of things, so whether it's um, a mission to Haiti, um, which it seems every time they're starting to get ahead, there's another earthquake or a tsunami or something, but there's so many, so much good work being done by the church there, um, various missions in Africa, South America. There's a lot going on in the world. We always need to be giving and helping each other. Or even in your local parish, if you if you know someone that's struggling in your parish, you know, offering to watch their kids so they can go do a job interview or whatever the case may be. Um, even doing something like volunteering for RCIA, right? that's participating in your community because new people coming into the community need someone to kind of show them the ropes so to speak help answer their questions help teach them like when you cross yourself at mass even it sounds so silly but if you're a convert and you go to mass for the first time one of the most nerve-wracking things is i don't know when to sit kneel or stand i don't know when to cross myself i'm going to stand out and everyone's going to
0: stare at me yeah yeah Man, yeah, that's true. Absolutely true. We're chatting with Benjamin Handelman, talking about obstacles that converts face. More to come right after the break. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888 888- Five two six two one five one. Here's Gary, and welcome back, everybody, to Hands On Apologetics, and we're chatting with Benjamin Handelman of Crossthetiber.org the org about obstacles that converts face, and uh, one of the big obstacles, lack of fellowship, um, which is a tragedy. I mean, uh, if we could change the world, I think, Benjamin, if our parishes lived. Li- actually lived a life that we're called to as Catholics, you know, to look at each other as Christ, you know, and the devotion that we have for one another, I think that would just transform the whole world. And unfortunately that's not what you find in your local parish.
1: No. And, or unfortunately, a lot of parishes just, they don't know how to do it anymore. So they realize they had a problem, right? They, they look out over their parishioners and they, they see that there there's no one under the age of 50 and oh my gosh how do we how do we this parish is going to die out how do we build it back up and then they often go the wrong route right they um and you'll often hear kids talk about like oh this is like a boomer answer to the problem right so you see those videos of like the guy in chicago waving like a bubble machine or stuff like that which is not not how we need to build community (laughs) we can do this as faithful catholics with a proper liturgy that doesn't do weird, crazy things like that because I, problem, I promise no one that's 25 years old is going to be excited about going to mass to see giant bubbles. It's just, it's not going to work. <laughs> I promise. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've brought up the problems. Well, what are some solutions we have? Um, so I'm actually going to use my own daughter as an example. Now, thankfully, she'll never listen to this because she thinks I'm just the worst thing in the world. <laughs> but uh, my daughter Rose, before we moved to Arizona last year, um, she had completely rejected the faith. Um, so she was confirmed at, um, as a, you know, a smaller child, of course, and came into the faith. She would go to Mass with me. And then um, when I fell away from going to Mass, well, that meant my family wasn't going either, um, which is why this is such an important topic. And uh, she was going to a public school at the time in california and it was like being a christian was just the worst thing you could be um christians were homophobic or racist or whatever they you know misogynist all these terrible things you could never identify as a christian she completely fell away from the faith we moved to arizona at this point i'm trying to encourage her but i'm dad right and when you have kids you know how that goes oh yeah it's it, when they're t- it's specifically teenagers, right, they'll listen to you when they're under 10. Well, let's say between 5 and 10, they'll listen to you. And they'll listen to you when they're over, like, 30. Everything in between there, if it's their parent telling them, that means it must be a lie, right? It must be false. You can't do that. So um, she started going to church with us because she had to, and uh, they had um, the life team band. Now, I'm, I personally, I'm not the biggest fan of live team music. It, it's, it, it, it's not well done in a lot of places. And I'll, I'll leave it there because I don't want to insult it. If that's how people really enjoy worship music at mass, then more power to them. So my daughter joins it. Um, now she's a leader in the high school group at the, at the parish. Um, she has started giving talks to the other high school kids and has been working with the priest and the person who runs the Life Team group. Um, this is all this all happened within the space of like eight months. Huh? Just a complete shift of her faith, and a lot. And that started with her becoming more involved. It was her, you know, joining the choir is technically what she's a part of. Uh, praying with them, going and doing things with them. They have a retreat here called Kairos, where they went as um, a bunch of high schoolers with one of the priests and a couple other parishes. And did, you know, uh, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters will be familiar with that kind of thing, like the summer camp type sleepaway camp thing. And she came back, and she's just a devout Catholic, right? She's telling her boyfriend that they're not allowed to be alone in a room together, that he has to convert to Catholicism if he wants to stay with her. You know, I didn't say it. Just let her say it. That's fine. This is great. So uh, that long story, you know, it's really to point to as you become involved in the parish life whether it's volunteering as a lector. Um, as, a, as a convert, you're one of the best people to help out at RCIA because you know all the questions that need to be asked. I'm not the best person. It's been too many years for me. I'll do okay, but if someone went to RCA two years ago, they're gonna have a way better idea of what a new convert is asking, how they feel about something, even just the basic things like, wait, how does confirmation work? I go to see the bishop and then I go to the parish. You know, all those little details, they matter. Um, volunteering for choir. I'm pretty sure most parishes have a choir, at least. If they have nothing else, they should have a choir. If you can sing, if you can't, go volunteer. They'll teach you how to sing. Um, Knights of Columbus, I think, is generally speaking, in my experience, a good opportunity. Um, at my parish, Knights of Columbus do all the, all the ushers for Knights of Columbus. They organize these pancake breakfasts. They organize bake sales to help support the, um, that single mother's ministry I mentioned. Um, they do a lot of things like that. So that's a good way to kind of plug in and be connected. I'm, I'm probably forgetting a dozen things, right? There's, there's so much you can do. All the things you did at your Baptist church or your Lutheran church, they're probably available for you. Uh, hopefully your parish is making that known to you. But there are ways to be involved. And as you're involved, whether an altar server, right? How many priests were not former altar servers? Right? Any of them? I don't know. I've never met one. Right. It starts with that involvement. That's how you learn those things, that's how you become connected to them. It's wonderful. So, as I agree with you completely, it's really tragic when parishes don't have these, or, or they don't advertise them, they don't help, you know, organize them or recruit for them. Um, because a lot of these things, they're, if you don't have a lot of time, being a lector is the perfect thing for you, because usually it's only once a month. Maybe you'll have a, another meeting once a month. It's a great way to get up there. You can practice your public speaking. You get to be part of the Mass. Um, there, there's all these little things you can do in the parish that really help build that sense of community and belonging. Uh, being an usher, welcoming people in. Ushers aren't the guys that kick people out. They're not bouncers right? They help you find a seat. They welcome you to the parish. They ask if you need anything, if you want to know anything. If you don't know when to kneel, sit, or stand, you can ask the usher. I promise you, he won't complain. He will tell you. He or she, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. um, In most parishes, uh, I mean, they're begging for people to uh, volunteer, you know, and especially if you feel that uh, you're a convert and you have these gifts that God has given you, you know, don't squander them. Uh, your parish probably needs them. And, and if your parish doesn't have something, maybe God is putting you in a position to get something going along those lines. You know, maybe maybe the ushers do nothing but just do collections on Sundays, you know, and, and you could turn them into greeters and things like that. Um, you know, of course, you, you got to, you know, there is a pecking order. Don't expect to be like to run things just uh, right out of the the gate. But um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the problems is uh, I know at our our RCA, we we've made it a point to invite people to join these groups and things because we we need them. And we need fresh ideas. We need people who are enthusiastic
1: and And who's more enthusiastic than that brand new convert, right? No one's more enthusiastic, they're willing to get up at 5am to open the church. They're going to be the loudest person singing in the choir. They're going to proclaim the word, you know, as a lector better than anyone, because they're going to—they're the ones that are really excited and on fire for it. So they're the best group to recruit from, both for us as Catholics reaching out to them, and hopefully we can encourage them to reach out as well on their own. Because uh, what's the phrase? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I can lead you through how to join RCA. The RCA director can lead you through RCA. The bishop confirms you right? The, the, the priest gives you your communion. There is a bit of, of self-ownership here where you do have to kind of step up, up beyond that a little bit and take some action. Um, and I, I, uh, I'll end on, there's something I heard um, my last pastor say, and he talked about how someone had come to him and said, oh, well, you know, I went off to college, and then I went to the service, and the music was so beautiful, wonderful, and I just felt Jesus, and he was present in a way he never was at the Mass. And Father Robert said, "Well, you know, uh, I never once saw you at, um, I never once saw you at adoration. So if you're complaining about not being present with Jesus, where were you? That was your perfect opportunity to be present with him, and you weren't there. So some of this is that self ownership, where hey, I want to feel Jesus, then I need to be a part of His body, I need to participate in His body, and be a member of it. Now this isn't unique to Catholics, right?" If you go to join the Baptist Church, they will be on you constantly. They will call you weekly asking how you're doing. They will, hey, have you thought about our bake sale coming up? Hey, we have a big potluck at the end of the month. Hey, are you plugged into a small group yet? Right? Are you doing Bible study? Right? Are you part of a prayer chain? There's all these things that they will do their best to sink you into, which is, again, I have so much respect for that. That's it. as Catholics, we need to be doing that too. That's something we very much can learn from them yeah
0: yeah, absolutely and like i said if if your parish doesn't have the the things, then maybe you're being called to to do them yourself i mean um uh one thing we did uh, when Chris and i i think it was before we got married, uh, she was going to a church that was not very orthodox. And so they were very hostile to to a lot of the things she wanted to do. So what we did was we just invited a lot of young people in the group and did our own Bible study, you know, at home and, you know, fellowship and prayer and stuff like that. So it wasn't directly under the parish, but, you know, uh, lots of lives are changed through that. So, uh, you know, you have to be creative too. don't necessarily if you run into a roadblock, you know, there are ways around it. Just be faithful.
1: And Catholic Bible study is so important because hey, maybe 90% of it we agree with our Protestant brothers and sisters on, but that last 10%, how you read Matthew 16, 18, and 19, for example, how we understand it in a broader context, it's so important. And that's, that's something that a lot of converts are missing out of, and it's something a lot of cradle Catholics have no idea about. So it's, it's not just fellow converts that you may be ministering to. There may be someone who's been a Catholic for 40 or 50 years that didn't really know their faith that well. And it's an opportunity for you to reach them as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, we've come to the end of the program. I want to talk a little bit about CrossTheTiber.org. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, about it and how people can get involved.
1: So we're a uh, nonprofit group. And what we do is we primarily just answer questions. That's, that's how I like to phrase it. Hopefully it's a little bit more. But the idea is if you have a question about Catholicism, we're going to respond not with opinions, but with source answers to make sure that you understand what the Catholic faith is better.
0: Awesome. And, and the website is CrossTheTiber.org. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. God bless.
0: All right. Yeah, great discussion as always. Benjamin Handelman. Yeah, check it out. CrossTheTiber.org. Great organization. And uh, you can point people to it as a resource. Thank you for listening. Coming up next, how you impact Catholic men. Terry and Justice Show. And God will be back again tomorrow.